The text for the preaching this morning is from the prophecies of Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 37, the second half of the chapter, the verses 15 through 28. In the first half of the chapter, Ezekiel has received the vision of the dry bones in which God has given a picture of the revival of Israel from the ashes of defeat and judgment. And then we go on to read further prophecy of the restoration of Israel in our text, starting at verse 15. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, take a stick of wood and write on it, belonging to Judah and the Israelites associated with him. Then take another stick of wood and write on it Ephraim's stick, belonging to Joseph and all the house of Israel associated with him. Join them together into one stick, so that they will become one in your hand. When your countrymen ask you, won't you tell us what you mean by this? Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, I am going to take the stick of Joseph, which is in Ephraim's hand, and of the Israelite tribes associated with him, and join it to Judah's stick, making them a single stick of wood, and they will become one in my hand. Hold before their eyes the sticks you have written on, and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, I will take the Israelites out of the nations where they have gone. I will gather them from all around and bring them back into their own land. I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. There will be one king over all of them, and they will never again be two nations or divided into two kingdoms. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols and vile images or with any of their offenses, for I will save them from all their sinful backsliding and I will cleanse them. They will be my people and I will be their God. My servant David will be king over them and they will all have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. They will live in the land I gave to my servant Jacob, the land where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children will live there forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers. And I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. That will be our text this morning, and the theme for the preaching is that God's people are one nation under one shepherd, and after the preaching we will sing our response from Psalm 87, all five stanzas of that psalm. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, I have to say it always amazes me that I can travel to a faraway place and be welcomed by a group of fellow Christians that I don't really know. I know some of you, but many of you I don't know or don't know very well. Now, admittedly, I haven't traveled very far. I've never been to China, as some of our pastors have been doing lately from the Canadian Reformed Churches to work with the Christians there. I haven't been to Brazil. I haven't seen the mission work that's done there. I haven't been to Indonesia. But I'm confident that if I were to go to those places again, 
I would meet Christians with, with whom I immediately feel a bond. Our shared Reformed faith would override any cultural barriers or barriers of language or of standard of living. It reminds me how not only the Holy Spirit binds us all under one head, one shepherd, Jesus Christ, but how also God shows us the scope of his plan. In the beginning, God made this earth. And it still belongs to him, and he's not willing to, to give it up, to, to just give it over to Satan, to, to give in and let it be a lost cause. This is his world. He created it through Jesus Christ, and now he is reclaiming the whole world through Jesus Christ. And so despite the best efforts of our spiritual enemies, those spiritual forces of darkness, God's kingdom is coming, and the church has taken root over the whole world. To be sure, there is work to be done yet. There are nations, ethnic groups that have not heard the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. But that good news has been spread in many places. And whether it be India, Egypt, Mexico, Hungary, you can find faithful Christians who serve Jesus Christ and who with you are destined for the glory of of the fullness of God's kingdom in the new heaven and the new earth. Now, what we experience in terms of a worldwide church, what I can experience coming from Chatham, flying four hours and worshiping in Edmonton, it's true that it still falls far short of what Jesus intends for us. There are still many tribes that don't know him, and the church, such as it is, is still divided by false teaching, by a long history of human pride and stubbornness. And yet, don't you think that the prophet Ezekiel would have loved to see a time like today? Wouldn't he have been amazed to be able to travel from one side of Canada to the other, all those miles, be able to worship in Chatham in a congregation of 280, and now come to Edmonton and worship in a congregation of 500 plus, all who profess their faith in Jesus Christ. Such a thing would have, I think, been beyond Ezekiel's imagination. Ezekiel lived in a time when the church was limited to one nation. And in Ezekiel's day, things had not turned out so well for that nation. Half of Israel was scattered abroad, including Ezekiel, who was in Babylon at the time that he wrote these prophecies, received them from the Spirit. The other half, what was left of Israel, was still in Palestine, but they were under siege by Nebuchadnezzar and his troops. If you imagine the nation of Israel in Ezekiel's time as a, as a tapestry, a beautiful tapestry, each tribe in its own spot, well, in Ezekiel's day, that, that tapestry was ripped to shreds, and there were only a few, a few little threads left. The people had forsaken their God, they had traded him in for idols. They had brought upon themselves the fire of God's judgment. Jerusalem was a smoking ruin. The temple was destroyed. The ark was a trophy. The king was dethroned. The tribes were scattered and uprooted from their inheritance. That was the context for Ezekiel's sign of the two sticks, this revelation from the Spirit. The Lord used Ezekiel 
beginning of this prophecy, the beginning of the book, he prophesied judgment, but at the end he prophesied the restoration, a better time, a time when God's plan is going to reunite God's people and restore them to a glory that not even Solomon's time could compare to. He would restore them under one shepherd, one king, David. So Ezekiel was told to get these two sticks. On one he writes Ephraim and all the tribes associated with Ephraim. That's the northern half of Palestine. On the other stick he writes Judah and all the tribes associated with Judah, the southern half of the land, those tribes that had remained faithful to the kings of David's line. Ezekiel was told to join these two sticks together, to make one stick, Judah and Ephraim, symbolizing a reunification of this divided and scattered nation and a return to the glory of David and Solomon, in fact, surpassing that glory. And all the tribes will be one again under a single king. God says the people are going to come to you and ask, Ezekiel, what does this mean? How can that be? You have to understand that when Ezekiel does this with these two sticks, there's quite a history of division and bloodshed between Judah and Ephraim. It began, the children will know this, it, will began, with, it began with Joseph's dream. Children, do you remember Joseph's dream when he dreamed of his father and his mother and his 11 brothers bowing down to him? All the other brothers, including Judah, took offense at Joseph, and eventually, when they saw the opportunity, they sold Joseph in, into slavery. They were jealous. In fact, we are told in the book of Genesis that it was Judah, especially, who led the brothers in this sinful act against Joseph. It was Judah who suggested, let's, let's sell him to the Midianites. Judah later repented of this sin and was forgiven by his brother Joseph, but when Judah was given the birthright of Jacob, then there was this jealousy that continued between Judah's descendants and Joseph's descendants, including Ephraim, his son. When the Israelites came into the land of Palestine, they were led by Joshua. Joshua was of the tribe of Ephraim, so it appeared as if Ephraim was preeminent in Israel. But then God made a covenant with David that his descendants from Judah would rule over the people of God forever. This did not please the Ephraimites. All through the time of the judges, you can read how the Ephraimites sought preeminence in the people, the nation of Israel. Continually you'll read of them coming to the judge who was leading the people at that day, and, and they would say, why didn't you call on us? How come you left us out? We want to be at the head of the army. When David succeeded Saul and was anointed king of Judah, the Israelites, led by Ephraim, preferred to have Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, as their king until Ishbosheth was killed. And even then, during David's reign, they supported Absalom in his rebellion. They really did not want to have to submit to Judah. And it didn't take them long after the time of Solomon and in the time of Rehoboam, David's grandson, to withdraw their support from the line of Judah from the line of David. And in Rehoboam's place, the tribes of the north chose an Ephraimite, Jeroboam, to rule. So you had that divided nation, that divided monarchy, where the separate halves of the, the nation occasionally 
got along and were allied. But at other times, they fought with each other. They shed each other's blood on the battlefield. One instance of this that you might be familiar with is the prophecy of Emmanuel in Isaiah chapter 7. That was at the time of King Ahaz in Judah, and he was being attacked by a coalition led by Pekah, king of Ephraim and the northern ten tribes. And the sign of Emmanuel was a sign of comfort that God would preserve Judah. But there was war, warfare. Blood was being shed. A long history had produced much bad blood between the two halves of God's people. It didn't seem humanly possible that these two halves could ever be joined again, especially because the northern ten tribes had been scattered to the winds by the Assyrians. But here is this sign. The sign of the two sticks, a promise from God that he can overcome this history, that he can heal the rift between the two, na- uh, two halves of God's people. And that would be a sign that he can restore a nation broken by idolatry and sin. Because indeed this prophecy is about sin and about God having the power to remove sin and undo the effects of it. The division of Israel was a result of their sinful pride and their stubbornness and a direct punishment on Solomon for his idolatry. So it's a reminder of the consequences of our sin. And we need that reminder because we too struggle with our sin and we have to fight against it. But after the exile, when the people returned to the land of Palestine, the remnant, God promised to remove the people's sin. He promised to give them new hearts. He promised to resurrect his fallen nation from the ashes of judgment and give them a new heart for his service. That's what Ezekiel saw in his vision of the valley of the dry bones in chapter 37, the first half. He saw Israel made new, a dead, a dead nation, a bunch of dry bones made new by God's spirit and God can overcome sin. And in chapter 36, Ezekiel also heard from God that he would sprinkle the hearts of the Israelites with clean water so that they would be devoted to his service and not to the idols anymore. So everything that had been ruined by Israel's sin is going to be restored. That's what our text is about. And it will be better than it was before they sinned. And part of this restoration will be the reunification of the tribes. God's scattered people are going to be regathered and reunited. And it will be just like in the time of David and Solomon. In fact, not only will the people be made whole again, but David will be their king again, says our text in verse 24. My servant David will be king over them, and they will have one shepherd. And there will be many other blessings. Idolatry will be banned from the people. That's verse 23 of our text. They are going to return to the land from which they were expelled. And we read that in verse 25. The covenant that was broken by Israel's unfaithfulness will be restored forever. That's verse 26. And God is going to live in the midst of his people just like he did before. That's in verse 27. There will be a new temple to replace the one destroyed by the Babylonians. So the reunification of the scattered, divided tribes, symbolized by the sign of the two sticks, will be part of a general repairing of the whole covenant and a general going back to all that was wrecked and ruined by sin, the sin that was so deeply rooted in the hearts of God's people. It's a prophecy of restoration. The question for us this morning is what to make of this prophecy and how to understand its fulfillment 
when Ezekiel speaks of the tribes being gathered out of the nations, being brought to Palestine, the first question is, is that literally going to happen? Has it literally happened? If it hasn't, will it? The sign of the two sticks, Judah and Ephraim and all the tribes, all 12 tribes being reunited and gathered together, has that happened or will it happen? Strikingly, there are no references in Ephraim in the historical literature of the Bible from the time of the return from exile until the close of the New Testament. So after the exile and return, Ephraim is never mentioned, and none of the tribes associated with him. If there were people from the tribe of Ephraim or from any of the tribes that were affiliated with Ephraim who returned to Canaan in the time of Nehemiah and Ezra, we do not read of it. And in the whole New Testament, there is only one reference to a person from any of those northern ten tribes. That is the prophetess Anna, daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher, the old woman who prophesied concerning Jesus Christ in the temple when he was brought there according to her decision. That's the only reference. And that has actually led to Ephraim and the other tribes of the, the northern half of the kingdom being referred to as the lost tribes. And if you want to be entertained, you just have to Google that term, and you'll find all sorts of wild theories about what happened to the lost tribes of Israel. The Mormon church, for example, claims that its original members were descended from Ephraim and Manasseh, and believes that Native Americans in North America are descended from a person named Lehi, an Ephraimite who escaped the destruction of Jerusalem with his family and eventually sailed to North America. But the short answer to our question is, despite what you would find if you Googled lost tribes, is there has not been any historical reunification of Judah and Ephraim. And the Jews today are descended so far as we know from the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And if there are any from other tribes, we have long since lost the ability to determine what is their ancestry. And so there are some Christians who think then that this prophecy in our text will be fulfilled in the future sometime. That we should still expect this prophecy to be fulfilled before our Savior returns. But there is one significant feature of our text that is then overlooked, which is that this prophecy was supposed to be fulfilled when David would come to rule again over the people, to be king, the one shepherd of his people. Now, since Scripture nowhere leads us to expect that David himself would come out of the grave and be king again, we take this reference to David to be figurative. Much in the same way as John the Baptist was Elijah returned, there will be a king who will be David. Not David himself, but who will restore Israel as it was under David, and even surpass David. And of course, we understand this to be a reference to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is descended from David. He will be the chief shepherd. He will be the one through whom this restoration will take place. And he will be the one who will then make this prophecy of the regathering of God's people come true. He will deal with the sin that has caused the division and brokenness of God's people. However, since the reign of Jesus has continued for 2,000 years, 
and will continue until its return on the clouds. In theory, this prophecy could, I guess, still be awaiting its fulfillment. And there are some Christians who then think that the conversion and reunification of the literal nation of Israel will happen before Jesus returns. But then we're not looking very carefully at the ministry of Jesus and at the ministry of the apostles that he appointed. If we look closely at the ministry of Jesus, then there's no doubt that this prophecy was being fulfilled at the time that Jesus came to earth to do the task appointed to him by his Father, and it's still being fulfilled today. The ministry of Jesus is portrayed from beginning to end as a new founding of Israel. How did Israel get founded in the beginning? Well, they came out of Egypt. They were delivered from Egypt. Then they went to Mount Sinai and they received the law. Then they went through the desert where God fed them with bread. Compare that to how Jesus did his work. He came out of Egypt after he had been chased there by Herod. He delivered the law to Israel in a sermon that we call the Sermon on the Mount. He gave bread to the people in the wilderness and even called himself the bread of life. I am the bread that comes from heaven. There are all these allusions to the founding of Israel because Jesus came to found Israel anew. And the most obvious reference to this of all is the fact that he chose how many disciples? Twelve. He chose twelve disciples to be the foundation of a new Israel. That's not a randomly chosen number. Twelve disciples would be for the New Testament church what the twelve patriarchs were for the Old Testament Israel and its tribes. So in Revelation 21, we read from chapter 7, but in chapter 21, when the New Jerusalem is described, we find that the twelve gates of the city each have the name of one tribe, and the twelve foundations each have the name of one apostle. The twelve tribes have been superseded by the twelve apostles. In his ministry, Jesus was beginning a new Israel out of the ashes of the old one, just as Ezekiel prophesied. But he was not restoring the old Israel directly, but was bringing restoration by making a new and better Israel. So the new Israel that Ezekiel was looking forward to is the church. The church was and is the fulfillment of Ezekiel 37 and the sign of the two sticks. Now I could hear someone asking, Really? The church is a fulfillment of Ezekiel 37 and and unity and oneness? Are we talking about the church that's divided into so many countless denominations? At least the Old Testament Israelites had only one split. How many reformed denominations are there in Canada? In Chatham, Ontario, we have the Canadian Reformed Church, but there's also a free reformed church, the Christian Reformed Church, There's the Reformed Church of America. There's the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. I think in Edmonton, there's also a a Protestant Reformed Church. How can this church, and there's so many more denominations, but we don't have time to list, how can it be said that the Christian church today is the fulfillment of of Ezekiel 37, a restoration of of Israel in, in oneness and unity? Well, in truth, it must be said that the Christian church today appears hopelessly divided. And if the church is the fulfillment of Ezekiel 37, then final fulfillment still must lie in the future when Jesus Christ returns and rids the church entirely of the sin that still plagues us in this life. On the other hand, we do confess in the Apostles' Creed 
one holy Catholic Christian church. Oneness or unity, as the catechism students know, is still a defining feature of Christ's New Testament church. No matter the fractious and divisive behavior of many believers and congregations, there are two ways in particular in which we see the unity of the New Testament church under David, that is, Jesus Christ, the descendant of David, our one shepherd. The first way we see the unity of the New Testament church is in that Jesus no longer restricts his new Israel to the physical descendants of Abraham. That's why we read from Ephesians chapter 2. The real division in the Old Testament wasn't between the tribes of the north and the tribes of the south, Ephraim and Judah. The real division was between Israel and the rest of the world. Israel versus the world. But Paul tells us that Jesus has removed what he calls the dividing wall of hostility between the two. The church that Jesus rebooted with the 12 apostles includes a wide range of people from across the world who are characterized not by the things that divide them, but by the faith that unites them against all odds. To be fair, that was foreshadowed in the Old Testament. We'll see that in Psalm 87. Psalm 87 is a prophecy about many different tribes and nations being joined with God's people, and we see that with certain people like Ruth, the Moabites, and Rahab, the Canaanite, others like them. But still, that was only a small foretaste of the worldwide sprawl of the church that we see today. The church today does not merely unite two sticks named Ephraim and Judah, or Joseph and Judah, but the church today, there are hundreds, even thousands of different sticks, the names of Dutchmen and Kenyans and Chinese and Russians and even Frisians. But second and more importantly, in terms of how we see the unity in the New Testament church, Jesus has filled his rebooted Israel with the Holy Spirit. If we had time to read Ezekiel 37, the first half, we would see that the Spirit figures prominently in the vision of the Valley of the Dry Bones. Verse 14 of that passage, so just before our text, God tells Ezekiel, I will fill you, not just you, Ezekiel, but you, the nation of Israel, with my Spirit. And that sets the stage for our passage. Our passage really is a description of what happens when God's people are filled with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit unites us to Jesus Christ, to that one shepherd, that one king that is foretold in this passage. The Spirit brings all God's people under the rule of their one king, Jesus. Now, since it's only in the New Testament that the Spirit has been poured out in abundance since Pentecost, it's only in the New Testament that the believers are grafted into the true vine the way that Jesus describes in John 15. Or in the language of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, we have become a single body. I know there is brokenness and division, but Paul can still describe the church of the New Testament as a single body. They're all different parts, but they all cooperate together, assisting each other to serve the will of their chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. Although the church falls short in many ways of the model that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 12, this is what the Spirit is making the New Testament church 
Jesus is crafting us through his spirit into a mutually supporting body where all the parts are united because they are united to him, the head. No part is more important than the other, and each part is necessary to the well-being of the body. And so you will find throughout the New Testament passages that speak about the unity of the church. 1 Corinthians 1, for example, the Apostle Paul urges the church in Corinth not to be divided by factions. We are one. He says to the Philippians, consider others better than yourselves and follow the example of Christ who gave himself for others. In, in Romans 1, chapter 12, or Romans chapter 1, verse 12, we are told to mutually encourage each other in the faith. James 2, we are told there is to be no favoritism and so on. We could multiply many passages. The prophecy of the two sticks doesn't foretell a literal regathering and reunification of the 12 tribes of Israel, but is a description in terms that Ezekiel's listeners could understand of Jesus' work to build a worldwide church united under one head by his Holy Spirit. And if you see the passage being fulfilled that way, then the actual fulfillment of Ezekiel 37 is much more impressive than any literal fulfillment could ever be. And then you go to Revelation chapter 7, and you see the final fulfillment of this passage as it's described in Revelation, first with all the tribes, each one represented by a full number adding up to a very full number, 144,000, a number symbolizing fullness and completion, each tribe represented. And then going on in verse 9, to see how that church is gathered from every nation, tribe, and people, and language, and we are led to praise God, because he has, in Jesus Christ, overcome our sin, and made a new Israel that far surpasses what he already built in the Old Testament. This new Israel is not the physical, but the spiritual descendant of Abraham, it puts its trust and faith in one king and one shepherd, Jesus Christ. Now, since Ezekiel 37 is then being fulfilled in the church today, that we see today these sticks being joined together, what we learn from this passage then, applying it to ourselves, is that the church today can be and ought to be characterized by oneness and unity. We have one king and one shepherd. We have been filled with the Holy Spirit. The dividing hostility has been taken away between Israel and the nations. So at a congregational level and at a federational level, we can see and we should see unity in the church. The unity that we confess, for instance, in Lord's Day 21 of the Catechism, where we say that the church is being gathered, defended, and preserved by Jesus Christ in the unity of the true faith. At a congregational level, we should expect believers to be able to live together in harmony, love, fellowship, mutual support. And if we don't see that happening, we believe that it can happen. We believe that Jesus intends his church to be a body that fits and works together and that he is making that intention a reality. It was foretold by the prophets. We don't have to wait until he returns on the clouds of heaven before we see progress towards unity at a local congregational level where grudges and sins and bitterness and divisions are overcome through peace, patience, grace, forgiveness, love, and kindness that the Spirit of Jesus teaches us to have towards each other. 
regardless of our mistakes, regardless of our sin, regardless of our past histories, which sometimes are even more complicated than Judah and Joseph, we are united by faith in this powerful, gracious Savior. This unity is a fact. Even if we don't always live it as we should, it is a reality. And we see it displayed at the table when we come together to be nourished by the same heavenly food and drink. If we truly believe in this Savior, this King and Shepherd, then we do believe that he can make us united more and more. That he can bring about the true fulfillment of what Ezekiel prophesied to a discouraged, broken, scattered nation in his day. And we can also expect to see Christ's powerful spirit working at a federational level. We are thankful for contacts we have with faithful churches all across the globe who are determined to give visible expression also to the unity of the church and our relationship with these other federations that we meet, such as the United Reformed Churches. The difficulty that we have to make the union between the United Reformed Churches and the Canadian Reformed Churches speaks to the deeply ingrained sin that lives in all of our hearts. But we do believe in the power of Jesus Christ and of his spirit. And in the truth of his word, what is prophesied here is God's word. The unity of the church is inevitable. And we shouldn't sit back and wait for Jesus to return and make it happen with a snap of his finger. We should be getting ready for that wonderful final fulfillment and show that we are eager for it by working towards it. Meanwhile, Ezekiel also reminds us that the unity of the church is a sign of all the blessings of the restoration of God's people and the preservation of a remnant for the glory of God under its king. In this passage in Ezekiel 37, the unity of a newly rebooted Israel trumpets that Christ is doing a wonderful and comprehensive work of salvation. God's people will enjoy his blessings, not in the form of a physical land of promise here on this earth, but in the form of many spiritual gifts and the promise of a home and a new creation. He's setting our hearts free from idols, just like he prophesied. He rules us through David's great descendant, Jesus, just as he prophesied. He has renewed his covenant with us and made it eternal, just as he prophesied. And he will make us increase until we are that great number in Revelation 7. It's a privilege to live in these days. More than once we read in the New Testament that the prophets of the Old Testament long to see what we see. Ezekiel would have loved to see this. He would have loved to know believers in Chatham and then also believers in Edmonton and be able to fly to China, Indonesia, wherever to meet other believers who share a common faith despite dividing barriers of culture and other differences. We are much closer to seeing the realization of God's grand plan than Ezekiel was. And we know the shepherd, the king, that Ezekiel was longing for. And we ought to be eager, almost to the point of impatience, to see all of this revealed in its perfection and final fulfillment when Jesus returns. Amen.